0: Tonight we're in Acts chapter 8 and we're going to finish that up. Chet was praying at the beginning right before he closed the song service that God would show us what his plan is for this world. And Acts chapter 8 and actually the entire book of Acts gives us insight into what God's plan is for this planet. And it could be simply summed up in saying that God's plan for people is that they might know Him. God's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God has a plan, not just for certain nations and for certain people groups, but for every human being. God has His will that they might know Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're going to look at an evangelist and a seeker or Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch, beginning in verse 26. William Barclay used to say that the possession of good news involves the obligation to share it. But if you know that you have good news that will affect everyone, it's a crime to keep it silent, to not share it with other people. Unless, of course, you really don't believe it's true. And if you don't believe it's true, you won't be sharing it. If you do believe it's true and you do believe that Jesus is the only answer, nothing could stop you from sharing it. It would be an inner drive and a compulsion to let other people know that good news. And yet it seems more and more that rather than becoming like the early church, who were fishers of men, that we become keepers of the aquarium. I know that there is a certain amount of aquarium keeping that must go on in the church. God raises up aquarium keepers, really. That is, people to tend the flock, the sheep, to make sure that Christians are strong. But when the church becomes introverted without an outlet, and they start looking at simply their own plans, their own future, their own lives, their own edification, counseling for their own problems, and neglect the outside world, that begins the death and the decline of the people of God. And you see the early church always having some kind of an outlet. What I see developing in these chapters, as we have seen two people primarily, Stephen and Philip, who started out being ordained as keepers of an aquarium. They were ordained to minister to the widows, you remember, who were neglected at the daily distribution although they were ordained to minister to the church, something happened that caused them, instead of being keepers of an aquarium, to become fishers of men. And that was sort of a mob scene that exploded in Jerusalem because Stephen was preaching the Gospel, got brought before the council, he was accused of many false crimes, he was put to death, and persecution exploded in Jerusalem, which caused what? It caused all of the Christians in Jerusalem to have to split. They had to go to other parts of Judea and then Samaria. And so we have seen that that persecution gave Philip a unique opportunity to preach the gospel to his enemies, the Samaritans. And tonight we see another occasion, another opportunity that is put before Philip. He gets the chance to share the gospel not with multitudes anymore, There's not a great revival that he goes to in Samaria, but one Ethiopian eunuch who's on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, let's just read through the account. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, uh, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? of himself or some other man. And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to them, to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he was, and he baptized him. When he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, or literally snatched him away. And so that the eunuch saw him no more. What a wild scene. But Philip was founded as Zotus, or modern Ashdod, and passing through, he preached in all of the cities until he came to Caesarea. One person, Philip was commanded to go minister to. And it says an angel told him to do this. Now, the question is, if the angel could speak to Philip to get a message across to the eunuch, why couldn't the angel himself just go down and get the attention of the Ethiopian eunuch? Certainly, that would have grabbed his attention, don't you think? An angel telling you to get right with God would tend to make most people do it. But God didn't choose to use an angel to preach the gospel. God chooses to use people to preach the gospel. Because there has never been an angel that has experienced salvation from sin and the grace of God. Only humans have. And because they've experienced it, they are more apt to share it. Although God could use angels, and you know what? If God decided to use angels to evangelize the world rather than people, even with all of our TV and radio, they do a much better job, I'm convinced. I'm sure I would have turned to the Lord a lot quicker if an angel would have flown around my house and told me to get saved. But God has chosen to use men and women as His instruments to get the job done. He has confined Himself, so to speak, to poor tools. He has chosen the foolish things and the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Why God has done that, I'm really quite not sure. But that's what He has chosen to do. And He's done it to confound the wise. Now, there will come a time in the great tribulation period When God will send an everlasting angel throughout the midst of heaven and earth proclaiming the gospel so that every creature on the earth will hear it and will have that one final chance. But until then, God has chosen to use human beings. He uses Philip, who is not, by the way, a professional evangelist. He has no training. He had no seminary. There weren't seminaries back then. He had no classes in techniques for evangelism. Now, I'm all for those classes. Anything that will help us to share our faith, I'm all for. But it is interesting that the early church, it seemed, never required classes or training to learn how to evangelize. They just had something happen to them. They were saved. It changed them. It was real. And they felt compelled to share it with everyone else. It was very simple. It just happened. And it was planned that way by the Holy Spirit. Why was it, as you read the book of Acts, as you look at church history, that the gospel seemed to spread so rapidly back then? Now I know we are seeing incredible things happen and we have have had seen, we have seen revivals at different periods of history. But you know, it does seem to me that with all of the Christians in this world and all of the TV and the radio and all of the technology that we could do a better job It seems that way to me, especially when you look at the early church, they had nothing of these tools. And yet the gospel spread so quickly. Why? Well, I believe there's a few reasons. Number one, the early Christians were moved by a burning conviction. That was the first thing they had. They were moved by a burning conviction. You know, as we said at the beginning, only people who are thoroughly convinced, let me rephrase that, only Christians who are thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the only answer for the world, the only hope for a person's eternity, only a Christian convinced of that is going to share his faith. People who don't share their faith are people who are not convinced of that. If they were convinced that people need Christ or they face eternity apart from God, if that really slammed them in the head and in the heart, they would be sharing their faith. And we see that's one of the traits of the early church, this burning conviction that something has happened to me and I want that same thing to happen to other people. Now I know that sometimes we will say, I don't want to do, I, I don't have the right. To disturb another person. To disturb their peace of mind. To impose my value system on them. And actually, one person came up to an uh, an old preacher one time and he said that. He said, you know what? You speak a lot about evangelism. I don't think that I should disturb people. The preacher said, let me ask you a question. If at three o'clock in the morning your neighbor was in bed and his house was burning... Would you walk over there and wake him up out of bed? Or would you say, I don't want to disturb him? Knowing that if you didn't disturb him, he would die, it would be criminal, wouldn't it? The man said, I see your point. And they had this burning conviction that I've got to tell them they will die unless they know. And that's what made these people spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Antioch, Macedonia, Rome... And everywhere else. That's what drives Christians today to become missionaries. That's what drives people today to leave the comforts of home and to go to places and sacrifice for the sake of the Gospel. Because they really believe that. They have a burning in their hearts that those people need to know Jesus. And so they go out. Now to have that kind of a conviction, it seems to me that a person needs to have a personal encounter. I'm reminded of the story of the two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They believed in God. They were religious. But they were downtrodden. Things did not work out the way they expected them. God's did not fulfill their own plans and agenda. And they had their hands in their pockets and their heads were down. And after Jesus showed up, remember Luke 24, and Jesus spoke the words of Scripture to them, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us along the way? You see, all of a sudden, they had this personal conviction because they had a personal encounter. And the the Word of the Lord burned within their hearts. And it says they returned to Jerusalem and they were ready to tell the disciples, He's risen, just like He said. Remember the shepherds at Bethlehem when the angels came and kind of surprised them? And said... I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For to you this day in Bethlehem is born Jesus the Savior. And he went on to explain where He would be. It says they went to Bethlehem and after that they returned glorifying God and praising Him for all of the things they had seen and heard. Their lives were different after that point. They were changed forever. And they at that point had a personal burning conviction. And they went and shared it with other people. You read the book of Acts, and it seems like these folks were unstoppable, unshakable. You could beat them up. You could even kill them, and they wouldn't shut up. You could take Paul outside the city and beat him with rocks. As soon as he gets healed, he'll walk right back into your city and tell you to get saved. How do you stop a person like that? You can't. Because as soon as you kill him, God will raise up somebody else. And the Gospel spread because they had a burning conviction that it was indeed the truth. There's a second factor. The Gospel, when it was preached by the early church, ministered to the felt needs of individuals at that time. During that time, they were fed up with the Roman government, the yoke that was upon them, the oppression. They had lack of peace, lack of joy. They tried all of the philosophies that the Greek world had to offer to no avail. Classic example, Stoicism. Now the Stoics were a bunch of Greeks who taught that you must harness all of the desires of the body of the flesh and you must suppress them. You must not let your body have rule over you. sounds sort of like the Scripture. But you do it by suppressing them. Concentrating. And showing absolutely no emotion. And in fact, the peak of being a Stoic is that you show no emotion. Stories were written about men and wives whose children were killed in front of them and they absolutely showed no emotion. Prided themselves that they did not shed a tear. Along came the Gospel. Filled with the grace and goodness and forgiveness of God who also taught that they could have victory over the things of the flesh, but only by the power of the Spirit. And a measure of grace was added to that. Even when you made a boo-boo, God would forgive you. Well, that ministered to a great number of people. And many people from those philosophies joined the church because the Gospel touched them where they were hurting. And the Christians seemed to be able to minister that way to the unbelieving world. The third factor is that the Christians demonstrated practical love. See, in those days, unbelievers could not write articles in newspapers like they have been written about us in the last five years. As we slam one another, one evangelist slams another evangelist, church leader slams another chief church leader on public television or radio. Tertullian, one of the church uh, writers of, of history spoke about how the pagans remarked how much Christians loved each other back then. In fact, the pagans would often say, I don't understand how these people can show such love for each other. And one of the ways they did it is they cared for the poor, cared for the widow, cared for the oppressed, the orphans. They visited people in prisons and the unbelievers weren't doing those things. Acts of compassion and kindness. They showed practical love toward one another. In fact, the early church would often perform a free burial service for their own. If they were poor, especially, they would, the church would pick up the tab for the catacomb or the cave or the embalming or whatever so that you'd have a decent burial. In fact, later on, the second half of the second century, churches started buying parcels of graveyards to bury their dead in it and to bury the poor in it. Hence the tradition of a graveyard or cemetery next to a church that has continued actually to about the last, um, stopped about a hundred years ago. Some churches still have them. Deeds of great compassion. And then finally, fourthly, persecution in the early church helped publicize Christianity. You say, well, that's the kind of publicity I'd rather not enjoy. Thank you. But thousands of unbelievers were able to watch Christians being tortured to death in the Colosseums or in the public squares. And they wrote about them and noticed what a calm courage they had in the midst of persecution. And it blew them away. No doubt this is what really grabbed Saul of Tarsus' heart as he saw Stephen being persecuted and killed. And he had to fight against that conviction on the road to Damascus. As the Romans would watch the Christians being eaten alive in the Colosseum. And there's many uh, stories and books you can get on this. Fox's Book of Martyrs. One of the greatest stories is one of Polycarp of Smyrna who was taken outside the city of Rome and said, renounce your position of Christ. He said, no way. He's been faithful to me for over 80 years. I'm not going to deny him now. We'll kill you. Tough. Kill me. And so they put... Logs together and they put pitch on the wood and they were going to burn him at the stake. And they tied him to the stake. And one military officer who had grown fond of Polycarp said, Please, recant your position. Don't die. Just say I deny Christ. It will be all over. He said, I can't do it. I won't do it. The soldier in anger looked at him and said, The fire will be hot. Polycarp said, Not half as hot as the fire you're going to face. And they lit. And the flame burned, but it would not extinguish His body according to the records. And finally, they threw a spear, went into His side, and He bled to death, and the blood extinguished the flames, and He died of bleeding to death. But with great courage, and it ministered to the unbelievers who saw Him die. All of these factors together in the early church caused a tremendous growth even in the midst of such terrible persecution. Why do I share these things? A couple of reasons. The Gospel needs to be preached. And secondly, it may get harder to preach it. As time goes on and as I study the newspapers, I don't see a social evolution as some have predicted. I don't see the world getting better by visualizing world peace. I don't see people hugging each other and meditating all together, just saying, oh, one planet, one people." Or all that. I don't see that happening. I see the heart of man growing worse and worse, and they'll eventually destroy each other. The heart of man has not changed, and although you might have a temporary peace, not for very, it won't last very long. Even the scripture says, "When they say peace, peace, then comes sudden destruction." And so we may face some of those times of persecution in this country. I don't know what the future is of this country. It seems like prophecy is silent about this country. That could be very comforting or very sobering and scary. But the gospel needs to be preached. In verse 25... It says, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And then the New American Standard Bible says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert. It's about a 60 mile stretch from Jerusalem to Gaza. One of the five principal Philistine cities that lay along the Mediterranean coast. You could still see them today. Some of them exist. Some of them are in ruins. But what's interesting is that Philip was taken out of probably one of the greatest moves of the spirit that the early church had experienced up to this point. A revival in Samaria where all of the Samaritans were being baptized. I mean, it was spiritual awakening time. In the midst of that, God tells him to leave this place of spiritual revival, spiritual excitement, and go out to the desert. Where he's standing out there with his arms folded, no doubt, thinking, Lord, why did you call me here? What do you want from me here? Because the Lord did not tell him everything that was going to happen. He just said, go down to the desert road. And so he went. You know, it would, it's so easy to stay in a place of great spiritual excitement. You're in a place where God is growing you up in His Word. You're excited about the Lord. It's always exciting to stay in a place like that. It's tough to leave. And you recognize that when you eventually do have to leave a place like that. And how easy it would have been for Philip to just stay in that exciting place of spiritual revival. Lord, I don't want to move. This is exciting. You're using me. I'm a mass evangelist. And God says, well, I have another job for you. And it was to preach to one person. Why would God take a person out of a great place of spiritual authority, change his ministry so he could preach to one person? Well, it happened to be the Ethiopian eunuch. And it could be that the Ethiopian eunuch went down to North Africa where he's from because the Coptic church is considered one of the, if not the oldest established church in the world. And it could have been started by this Ethiopian eunuch who was saved at this point and God wanted the gospel to go to Africa. But we learned something about God's guidance right off the bat. When God tells you to do something, He doesn't give you a blueprint. He doesn't say, here is my will for your life for the next year. Now, next month. And He doesn't give you a calendar. He just says, go. If I go, then what? Uh, Lord, a hint. Two words. uh, Nope, I won't tell you. God just tells you to take the first step. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, we don't like to pray that. We like to pray, give us this month our daily bread. Give me security and let me know what you want. Lord, I'll go anywhere as long as it's a good place and you uh, give me something I'd like to do. Now, go. Where? I'm not telling you. What will I do? Go. Remember the Scripture that says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his path? You take one step. And when you take one step, God will tell you the next step. But God won't give you a city block at a time. Just one step, He'll guide. We learn another lesson. That God is not only concerned for the great masses of people, but for individuals. Just like Jesus who left the crowds and spoke to a woman at the well in Samaria. Here's Philip in Samaria. A tool of God to reach the masses. But God is as concerned about one individual Ethiopian eunuch as a large mass of people. Remember Jesus said, what does the shepherd do who has ninety-nine sheep when one goes astray? He leaves the ninety-nine, goes to the mountains to search for that one lost sheep. And when he has found him, he rejoices more over the one lost sheep than all of the ninety-nine that didn't go astray. Here's Jesus through Philip seeking out this lost sheep. Now, verse 27 As soon uh, as he arose, so he arose and went. And behold, I like that word, behold. It kind of conveys a message to me. I see Philip out in the desert, arms folded. He just left Samaria. He was a mighty vessel of God. It started to be his worldwide evangelistic crusade being kicked off. And now he's down in Gaza, out in the middle of the desert, thinking, okay, Lord, what's next? Behold, off in the horizon, smoke is coming up and it's the wheels of a chariot coming toward him. He sees a man from Ethiopia. God says, Go join yourself to the chariot. Let's read it. I keep losing my page here. Behold, a man from Ethiopia, a eunuch, of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Perhaps he was doing what I like to do when I drive. We don't know that he was standing still in the chariot or the horses going, and he had the scroll of Isaiah, and he was reading it. You know, he's out in the desert. There's no oncoming traffic of other chariots. at The stop lights are all green. He thinks, I'm just going to take read my Bible a little while. And he happens to be reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He's an African man. He's from Ethiopia, which corresponds to the upper Nile region in those days. Not really modern day Ethiopia, but the upper Nile region. He's a eunuch. A eunuch was a person who was either born that way or later on emasculated so that he could be in charge of a royal harem without temptation. He was in charge of the treasury. He'd be equivalent of the Secretary of Treasury in our country. And was in charge of this Candace, who was not a Candace is not a first name, by the way. It's a title, like saying king or pharaoh. This Candace was a queen mother in charge of overseeing the affairs of Egypt or excuse me, of Ethiopia in those days. And Her son, who was considered to be divine, he was worshipped by the Ethiopians, was too special to take care of mundane affairs of state, and so the queen mother took care. He came from a pagan culture, but he's been in Jerusalem worshipping. Which reveals something important about this man. This man had a deep hunger for God. To travel a journey of about 200 miles to go to one of the feasts in Jerusalem to worship God. Now, I consider that a long distance to commute to church. Especially in those days when they had chariots and they didn't have little planes you could catch or trains or cars. We have a couple in this church that actually drives from down by Ruidoso to come to church up here on Sunday. Another couple from Cuba who drive down. Another couple from up in the uh, past Santa Fe, up in the Pecos. Those are long distances to travel. Here's a man who's hungry for God hungry to know the truth. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. Here's a man. He left Jerusalem. He's reading the Bible. Obviously, he's still empty and hungry inside to know the Lord. Which, by the way, is something interesting. Religion will leave a person totally empty in the end. This guy just got out of church, just got out of a worship service, and he's still hungry, still empty. He wants to know God. He's open to spiritual truth. This week I came across uh, some literature by a group called the Barna Research Group. They interviewed a cross-section of Americans recently and found that four out of five Americans say that they're Christians. And yet, the ones they polled said... The churches in America, by and large, are outdated and fail to minister to the contemporary individual. Now, I don't know if I agree with all of it, but to a large degree, I agree. To a large degree, I agree. That's how the Ethiopian eunuch felt. He's just been in Jerusalem worshiping at the temple watching the slaying of the animals, all of the rituals. It's not enough. He's still empty. He still walks away needing something. Remember Nicodemus. Went up to Jesus one night and He said, We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles and signs that you do unless God be with him. Jesus sensed within Nicodemus a great spiritual need. And He got right to the point. He said, Nicodemus... Unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. He didn't discuss religion with them. He got to his Well, How can a man get born when he's old? Does he crawl back into his mother's womb? Nick, you're missing the point. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say you must be born again. You need a spiritual birth and awakening, Nicodemus. You're very religious. You belong to the Sanhedrin. It's not enough. You're so empty, Nicodemus. You're sensing in me a fulfillment of a dream. It's because you need to be born again. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. They read out loud in those days, by the way. It was a common practice among the Jews. And I love the way he starts witnessing to this guy. He says, hey, you understand what you're reading? Listen to the response. How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. What a humble response. I think a lot of people would be tempted to say, Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, how many people have you witnessed to and they nod their head and you know they're not even grasping an nth of what you're telling them. But they don't want to appear ignorant. This man admitted his spiritual need. How can I? Unless someone guides me find that interesting. He did not magnify his doubt. You know, there's a lot of people today who magnify their ignorance. They'll say, oh, I don't know it's, if, if Christians are right or if Buddhists are right or I'm agnostic. And they say that proudly as if that's a, a great term. I'm agnostic. In Greek, it means agnosco without knowledge. In Latin, it's ignoramus nothing to boast of. But they will say that as sort of a neutral territory saying, I don't know what is the truth. I'm agnostic. Well, do you search for the truth? Or do you use that as some kind of a superiority to look down on people who are less intellectual than yourself who say they really know the truth? We have tried to find a speaker to debate this creation scientist that's coming into town, Dr. Walter Brown. Couldn't find one. We found one person who said he'd do it. And I respect the man's credentials. He's a thinker. He's an intellectual. He's got it together. And he's got the degrees behind it. he said, I will debate this man. I had to change the dates because Walter Brown is sitting on error rat without any money in a helicopter. So I changed the date. And I asked this other man, this other PhD in town, if he could make that date to debate him. He said, I'm sorry, I'll be out of town. But I refuse anyway to debate because number one, Calvary Chapel is not a neutral place. I said, all right, I'm thinking let's do it at the university. I don't care if we do it at Calvary Chapel or not. Truth is truth. Better yet at the university. And then he said, "I I refuse because I do not consider creation science to be science at all. And I'm thinking, well, that's the whole nature of the debate. <laughs> Come debate that. Don't just make a statement like that, like, oh, it's not a science. Let's see what's science. And, and debate not on religious biblical turf, but on scientific turf. But he said, how can I unless someone guides me? I love that response. Everyone who searches honestly... If you have any doubts at all, if you honestly search to find the truth, God will not let you down. God will minister to every honest doubt. Not a pretend doubt. If you really honestly have doubts, it's nothing to be ashamed of. But you search. Jesus said this, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. God will tell you, And God will give you those answers. In verse 31, it brings up something very important, though. This Ethiopian eunuch recognizes the need to have someone teach him truth. Now, the Scripture tells us in First John that you have the Holy Spirit. He's given you an anointing so that you don't need someone to teach you. And I've heard people take that out of context, saying, I don't need the teaching of pastors or evangelists or books or tapes. I will just go and separate myself from the church and I'll go out every Sunday to the middle of the woods and I'll sprawl out with my hands and I'll open my Bible and that's my relationship with God, period. I don't need anybody else. God gives two things to the church. Number one, He gives the Scripture, which is the infallible, inerrant basis for all truth. Secondly, He gives to the church gifted people so that we can all grow. All of us need growth. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. He gave them their gifts to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. And so this man recognized, I need someone to instruct me. I need a spiritual teacher here. Not that a spiritual teacher is inerrant, but representing the inerrant truth, you can guide me into all truth so that I know what I'm reading. And so God gives apostles, pastors, teachers to the church to guide them, to graze them in the scripture, and to guard them from false prophets. And so he recognized that. Now look in the next verse. The place in the scripture which he read was this. Isn't this a coincidence? He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Isaiah 53. And like a lamb, silent before a cheer, he opened not his mouth. And his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? I hope so far you've noticed the providence of God in the life of this Ethiopian eunuch. It just so happened that he had a scroll of the Bible, which was very rare for anyone. They didn't carry scrolls around. They were kept in the synagogue. This man was obviously wealthy and influential and had his own scroll of the Old Testament. And he happened to have the scroll of Isaiah. And he just happened to be reading Isaiah 53. And it just happened that as he was reading Isaiah 53, Philip's around. And he says, get inside. You're a hitchhiker? Come on and tell, tell me what I'm reading. And from that Scripture, he preached Christ to him. There is a thing, a principle, called providence. I hope if you're a Christian, you picked up on it in your life personally by now. By providence, I don't mean the miraculous. I mean God arranging ordinary events to get His will done. Can you look back on your life? And as you look back on the little... Appointments and meetings, and how you've met certain people and done certain things, and certain circumstances fell into place at the perfect time. You look back and you go, the Lord's hand was in it all the time. F- guiding me. If I hadn't met that person, I wouldn't have gone over there, and if I hadn't have gone over there, this wouldn't have happened. You can all see it looking back, can't you? It's the providence of God. Providence comes from two words: pro, video, to see in advance. God has, if you will, a video of your life even before you live it out. He has that in heaven. He knows what's going to happen. And it's as if God can plug in your life's video and tune in His little VCR and see all of the events possible in your life and can edit at will so that things fall into place to get His will done. Now, you don't know they're happening while they're happening, but you can certainly look back. And I bet when you get to heaven, you're going to have a fun time in the viewing room. (laughs) As you see, all of the things have worked together for good to those that love God and were called according to His purpose. And it will probably blow your mind at the love of God. The providence in this man's life. It reminds me of a scripture in the book of Esther. Esther is in Shushan the palace, and Haman has a plot against the Jews to kill them all. And there's one key Jewish lady who's in the palace named Esther. Mordecai the Jew finds out about Haman's evil plot. And he goes and he says to Esther, If you remain silent at this time, relief for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. That's one of my favorite verses. For such a time as this. He recognized that God is like a stage director who can direct the affairs and circumstances of your life and put all the props on stage. And He brings you to moments of decision in your life where you become the person who fills the gap to get His will done. And so who knows, but that many times God puts you in a setup for such a time as this to providentially get His will done. God has setups for you. Even as God sent Philip to this Ethiopian unit, God puts you in setups for a specific time to get His will accomplished. And so the uh, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. What was his message? He preached Jesus to him. Did Philip talk about the apostles? Oh, man, you got to hear Peter, man, he's such a great preacher. He preached Jesus to him. Did Philip brag about the revivals in Samaria? You ought to see what's going on up in Samaria where I just came from. Did he preach religion? Did he preach being a good human being? And being good, he preached Jesus unto him. That was the Gospel. Because the Gospel is Jesus. The Gospel is not about Jesus. The Gospel is Jesus. What's the good news? Jesus. You see, Christianity is not a set of teachings, a creed. It is a person. We don't tell a person, you want to get saved? Believe this set of teachings. No. You must be born again. You must come to Jesus. You must trust Jesus. You must have Jesus personally wash away your sins. Give you life. You must personally follow Jesus. Salvation is always a person, not a creed, not a set of teachings. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures. And I wonder if He could say this to many so-called Christians today. You read your Bibles because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify about Me. Salvation is Christ. I heard a story about an unusual cathedral over in Europe. And it's probably the only cathedral that I've heard of that I really liked. Because in the cathedral in the front is a statue of Jesus Christ. And around the cathedral are all these other statues of different prophets, New Testament personages, apostles, and so forth. And they're all pointing to Christ. And so underneath Jacob, you see Jacob pointing to Christ. And underneath him will be an inscription out of Genesis 49 which says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And underneath Job, pointing to Christ, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the latter day, He will stand upon the earth. And underneath Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, on and on. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God, all pointing to Christ. The Scripture does that. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached a message, no matter where it was in the Bible, he could always preach Jesus from the text. Even if it was right out of Leviticus, Second Chronicles, Psalms, he could always point to Jesus. And the Scripture points. And so he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Do you notice how receptive and ready and prepared this guy was by the Holy Spirit before Philip even... He's requesting to be baptized. He doesn't have to give him a pep talk. He asks for it. Hey, here's some water. Can I get baptized? Well, if you believe with all of your heart. I believe. All right, let's go. I have found that oftentimes when people come to church, but by the way, church is not the primary place for evangelism. I love evangelism. I have a passion for it. And whenever there's unbelievers, I like to give a response. But I find that people come having been prepared by you. You're out there sowing seeds and watering throughout the weeks and through the months. And I, I just get the cream on top. I get to give an invitation. And oftentimes they've been so prepared already. And I proved that one night. One night, we started a service, a communion service. As we got into it, I said, now before we start this communion service, some of you have come who don't know Jesus Christ. How many of you would like to get saved? And I raised your hand and a whole bunch did which showed I didn't prepare them through my message. They had already been prepared before they got there. Paul the Apostle said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. And it doesn't matter because we're all going to get the same reward in the end. Here's this man. He's just ready to hear the Gospel. Uh, I find something else fascinating about his conversion. The very next chapter, who do we see coming to the Lord? Saul of Tarsus. It took a supernatural vision to get his attention. It did not take a supernatural vision to get the attention of the Ethiopian eunuch, only a simple reading and explanation of scripture. You see the power of the Word of God? Oh, he needs a sign! Well, if he's stubborn, he probably does. If he's searching for the truth, all he needs is the Holy Spirit to break through his heart with the Word of God. There's power in the Bible. God said, my word will not return void. That doesn't mean you just start bulldozing Scriptures out to people without explaining what they mean. And some people take that. They say, let me ask you a serious question. And it doesn't do any good. Explain it to them. Listen to them. But the power of the Scripture. I've told you before, my father-in-law was an atheist. He raised my wife to be an atheist. He tucked her in bed at night, taught her stories how God doesn't exist. And so her bedtime stories was the non-existence of God and the ability of man. And one time he decided, I'm going to read the New Testament. this red letters in the New Testament. See if Jesus was a positive person. He gave His life to Jesus that very night. People before that tried to argue with Him. Apologetics. He, d- he just took the power of the Word of God. He gave His life to Jesus because He was open. Before we close there's something I have deliberately skipped over, and perhaps you've noticed and you've had some questions about it. And that is this issue of guidance. It says in verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. It's kind of remarkable to think that this guy was on a speaking terms with angels. That's fascinating to me. But then over in verse 29, we don't see an angel anymore. It says, the Spirit said to Philip, Whether it was a still, small voice, an audible voice, I don't know. In verse 39, when they come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. How does God guide His people? Well, sometimes through miraculous ways, sometimes through very simple ways. We've already seen a few instances here tonight. And just to refresh your memory, he leads through the Word of God like he did to the Ethiopian eunuch. And probably today that's God's primary guidance is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of each and every one of you believers. And He uses His Word to give you principles and then He'll specifically apply those principles to different situations, giving you wisdom in the circumstances of life. Sometimes the Spirit of God will guide you through using other people. It says in the Psalms, in the multitude of counselors there's safety. safety. And in the book of Acts, chapter 15, they got together, they prayed, they discussed. They came up with they believed what, was, what they believed was God's will. Another way God guides is through closed doors. You know how often we say, God opened a door? Sometime God will slam a door in your face. So that you will know, I'm not going to go in that door. And oftentimes, God does that with me because I find I'm often so dense that God has to use those kind of methods. Sometimes I'm open, I'm ready, and it could just take a still, small voice. Other times, it takes some dramatic methods because I'm not sensitive to them. And so we see that with Paul the Apostle. He was going to go preach three different places and it says the Holy Spirit forbade him to go. Until finally there was no other options, God spoke to him in a dream. A man from Macedonia said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Some of you have lost your jobs and perhaps you wondered why. I can't answer that, but it could be that that's a closed door. Here you are crying because you lost your job and God in His mind has a better job for you and a week ago you didn't want another job even though God had a better one for you, now you're looking for the better job that God has. <laughs> it could be God's method of performing His will. Then it could be simply the decision of faith. You know, the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, and I raise my hand to that one, let him ask of God who gives freely, won't hold anything back, And oftentimes, I'll face a situation and I won't know what the will of God is. People say, well, what do you see in the future for Calvary Chapel? I have no idea. I'm living one step at a time and one day at a time too. And every now and then, God will break in and give me tremendous vision. Most of the time, I'm saying, God, please give me wisdom. Give me light. Give me guidance. And I find God's will unfolds daily for me. And I'm just simply clinging to Him, asking wisdom. And I make natural, normal decisions like anybody else does. And oftentimes I look back and I find that that was the will of God. He told me to ask for wisdom and then act on that wisdom. And I've asked, I've acted. Praise the Lord. I trust that it's His will. In closing, there's some lessons for us. And this is really the heart of this message tonight. If there's one thing I'd like to get across to every one of us, that is the need for being a personal witness. And there's a few hints here to doing that in the book of Acts I want to share with you. Number one, Philip took the initiative. God spoke to him and he did it. He didn't wait for the Ethiopian eunuch to come up to him and say, excuse me, are you an evangelist? Could you share the truth with me? He took the initiative. He heard him reading and he said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And I think we need to do that too. We need to take the initiative. Do people know you're a Christian? Are you waiting for them to ask you a specific question? Now, I'm not advocating that you should be obnoxious and walk into your work and go, I'm a Christian! Are you? But that you look for key opportunities when you're alone with one person or perhaps a group to ask a question to lovingly portray the Gospel for them. Do they know you're a Christian? Or are you what they call a Lady Clairol Christian? Only God knows for sure. Take the initiative. I met a guy last week in the parking lot who's been coming to church. He said something so beautiful to me. He said, I feel like the Lord has just put this on my heart that every time I con- come in contact with any individual for any, a period of time, you can't pass everyone on the street when you're driving on the street, but when I'm with a person for a period of time, every single person to share the Gospel with, take the initiative and ask them if they know Christ. There's a second lesson we learn. He stayed on target. What did He preach to them? Jesus. didn't talk about religious differences or this group against that group. He preached Jesus to them. Many people fail to receive the Gospel because they've never heard it. They don't know what the simple Gospel really is. Stay on target so that they might know it. Thirdly, He allowed a response. He just didn't shotgun out a message and then close. He waited for the man to respond to him. And I think that's important whenever you share to not just pass out a track and say, read it, bye. Shroom. I used to have a little method. I'd pass out tracks when I was living in California quite a bit. I'd pass out a track and I'd say, excuse me, could you read that? Sure, thank you very much. And you'd start to walk away and go, no, no, now. "But Now? Yeah, it'd take 60 seconds. All right. So he would read through it. And I'd say, what do you think? Well, kinda nice. What'd you like about it? Oh, I like the pictures. Well, which ones? (laughs) Oh, this one, the, the guy has that heart that's empty. What do you think that means? And I'd ask him questions, pretty soon we'd have a dialogue, and there'd be a response, and he allowed a response here. And then fourthly, he was flexible in his methods. He didn't just have to preach to multitudes, he was able to preach to one person. And evangelize one person. And so he was flexible with the method, but the message never changed. Always the same. He always preached Jesus, whether he was in Samaria or whether it was with the Ethiopian Union. Now let me ask you a question. I assume most of you are believers. Some of you are not. Maybe you've come with a friend. Have you taken a step of faith, not a religious step, but a step of faith to ask Jesus Christ to invite Him to take over your life as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to a place of conviction in your heart where you know that you're a sinner? You know something is empty, something is missing. You've gone to church, but there's still that emptiness and that void. Well, there's a little thing that's separating you. It's called a step of faith. Take a step of faith. Now, I will hear people say, I can't take a step of faith for something I don't understand. I must understand it before I will do it. You're a liar. There's a lot of things you do that you don't understand. You drive on the freeway all the time and probably daily pass over several bridges. Do you stop before a bridge and look underneath it? Make sure it's structurally sound. No, you drive over it without thinking. Trusting that the engineer in the building department made it safe. Even though you may not understand how it was built. A pharmacist will give you medication. He didn't know you from Adam. But you trust that what he's given you won't kill you, but will help you. You're putting your trust in him, even though you don't understand all about pharmacy. You get on airplanes and you travel. Do you check the instrument panel before you take your seat? Unless I understand this, I'm not taking off. Well, then you probably will stay on the ground. You take steps of faith constantly. God is inviting you tonight to take another step of faith toward Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You that the Gospel is simply Jesus. You haven't handed us a a list of religious forms and creeds and rituals. We've done that. and We have muddled up many times that which is so simple and precious. A simple personal encounter and relationship with a living God. We know, Lord, from the Scripture that Your desire is that no one should perish eternally, but that every single person should come to a place of repentance. I pray, Father, that if there is any one or more than one, a few, that haven't made that decision for You to be their Lord, for You to wash their sins and be born again, that they do that tonight. As your heads are bowed and as you're praying, if you're a Christian, I give an invitation to those of you who you feel like you've come to an end of yourself. You've tried different avenues. You've tried different experiences in life, but you've come up empty. You're still searching. You're still looking for something to fulfill you, to satisfy